If you would, take your Bibles. Let's open to the Word of God this morning to Psalm 62. Earlier this week, I was speaking with one of our chapel members. We were out in the in the foyer and talking, and they received some more difficult news this week. It was just another in a long stream of bad news over the last few years. And yet, despite the news they had and what all that means in the days ahead, there was no self-pity from their lips. There was no panic. There was no despair. There was no why me. There was no, no even discouragement in their voice nor in their attitude. And I wonder, how is it that You have calm when your world caves in around you. Whether it's physical infirmity, terminal illness, the loss of a loved one, perhaps the loss of property due to some disaster, some accident. Perhaps you find yourself victimized by violence or by crime, or betrayal. What are we to do when our world falls apart or our world goes insane like much of the world around us when evil seems to be winning the day? When politically and societally there is hostility towards righteousness, Godliness. What do we do? What will we do if what happens, what is happening to some 450 million of our Christian brothers and sisters today around the world comes here? We find ourselves where simply standing for Christ brings upon us persecution and suffering. In any of those situations, in all of those situations, is there a way to have a calm heart in the midst of chaotic and difficult times? Psalm 62 gives us the answer to that question. It's a psalm all about rest. Many of the psalms are prayers. They are our prayer to God for something or about something. This is not one of those psalms. Many other psalms are addressed directly to God, not in prayer, but in worship. This is not one of those psalms. This is, as I think, is addressed to David and to us. It's a psalm to us about lessons that we need to know so that you and I can be confident in even in a chaotic and dangerous world. This psalm, like a lot of songs that we sing, has verses to it. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the little verses that the translators added to help us find where we are, but it has verses like we sing a song, we just sang, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, and we sang three verses or three stanzas to the song. You can find them here in the text this morning if If you could speak Hebrew, you could see them easily because the first word of every verse in this psalm is the word only. Well, in Hebrew it's not only, but translated it would be only. 
We don't see that in our English text. Verses 1 through 4 are the first verse. Verses 5 through 8 are the second verse or the second stanza. And verses 9 through 12 are the third stanza. You can also tell what you can see in our English text is the verses are separated by that little word Selah. Selah, by the way, is not an English word. It's just a Hebrew word moved right over into English. And it's done that way because, well, we really don't know what it means. <laughs> so they just take the Hebrew word put it there. It's thought to be possibly a musical term, kind of like a rest in the score where it just says, musicians, pause, here, stop. Or possibly and perhaps more likely, it's a word just to, to tell all of us to stop for a moment and think about what we just said. Meditate on this. Ponder it. This is significant. So let's jump in. The psalm opens with David declaring his trust in God. We, by the way, we don't really know what's going on in David's life as he writes this psalm. We don't know. Many of the psalms give us the, the backstory right at the beginning of the psalm. This one doesn't. What we do know is that David, as he writes this, and as he declares his trust in God, what we do know is that he's in the midst of a very difficult time. His world is turned upside down. He is in the midst of chaos. He's not like here, he's not writing as preachers we, we often do. We often talk about things of which we do not know. We talk about things which we don't experience. We flap our gums and you go, yeah, 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 what does he know? And you're right when you do that about this pastor. Often I don't know by experience. But David here is writing not from theory, but from reality. He's not writing hypothetically, but he's writing experientially. He's in the thick of it. Now we wonder how bad is his situation. We find the answer. Just skip down to verses 3 and 4. Let me read them. David says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. How bad is his situation? It's a time of crisis, and in this crisis we discover he has enemies. Not just an enemy, but he has apparently a whole bunch of them. He says, how long will all of you? There's a lot of folks against him. People who are committed to bringing him hurt. Have you ever had an enemy? Many of you have. If you've ever had someone who is committed to your harm, committed to your destruction, who is intent on bringing you down, on causing you misery, on bringing you pain, you get it how unsettling that is, how troubling it is, how insecure you can feel. These folks are committed. It says they attack Him. The New American Standard says they assail him. The New International says they assault him. He's got enemies. Not only does he have enemies, but he's tired. He says, how long will all of you do this? Apparently they've been at this for a while. 
And he's wondering, is this going to stop? Are you guys going to keep this up? I think he's like he's saying, are you guys tired yet? Because I am. <laughs> it's exhausting to always be on the defense. It's exhausting to always be wondering what's coming next. Not only is he tired, but he's in danger. Text says the attack aims to batter him. New American Standard says they seek to murder him. They desire, it says here, verse 4, to thrust him down from his high position. David, you recall, is the king. So whoever this is, they desire to take him off the throne and they desire to do it by, at any cost, by whatever means they can find. He is in very real and very desperate danger. But not only is he tired and in danger, but he's vulnerable. He's in a weak position, he says, like a leaning wall, a tattering or a tattering fence, tottering fence. It's, the imagery here is you've seen a, an old fence where the foundation has given way or the, or the wood has rotted at the base and the fence is about to fall over. And the only reason it didn't fall over is because it fell against a, a bush or a tree or something else. And it's just kind of there, just barely there, but it just seems like the least little thing and it's over for good. David says, that's me. By the way, have you noticed that is when evil people tend to strike? Evil people don't tend to go against the strong. They tend to go against the weak. They tend to go against the vulnerable. They tend to go, you know, every time you'll watch, a, see something come across the news about uh, some con or some swindle, it seems they almost always target the elderly. They target the the, those who are feeble-minded or those who are in some already desperate situation, those who can least afford and who can least stand against some attack, and that's who they pick on. Evil people always tend to be that. And here, when David is at his most vulnerable spot is when he finds the attack to be the most fierce and most vicious. Not only that, his enemies are ruthless. They are evil people who don't play fair. They never do. They lie. They are deceitful. They are sneaky. They pretend to be your friend and all the while plot against you. So they bless with their mouths, he says, but inwardly they curse. That's David's situation. But in the midst of all that, how's he holding up? If anybody has the right to be complaining, if anybody has the right to panic, it would be David. But how's he holding up in this situation? Verse 1 and verse 2, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. David stands up to this time of crisis and he finds himself in a place of confident rest. We asked earlier, is it possible to find a place to be at rest and at peace and calm in a desperate situation? And David says, I am. Again, the key word in, these, in this psalm is the word only or alone. And he says, he's in this place because God alone rescues. 
He says, for God alone or only in God is there salvation. David understood that there is only one place where ultimately we find rest. There's only one place where ultimately we get relief. And any other place that we go, we will find ourselves disappointed. Why is rest only in God alone? He goes on to say, because God alone is only my rock. Three reasons he gives. God is my rock. God is my salvation. God is my fortress. God is my rock. Out in the wilderness, out in the the desert mountains, which is probably where he is, the rock is a place, often a place of refuge. A rock formation can provide refuge from the sun, relentless beating of the hot sun, or perhaps from the refuge from the from the storm, those rare and violent storms that blow in in the desert wilderness. The rock can also provide refuge from enemies who are out to get you, gives you a place to hide. The rock, as we sang earlier, on Christ the solid rock I stand, the rock is a place of firm footing if you're climbing through the, the desert and the loose, the loose dirt. But all of those are possibly what he means, but I think perhaps he's looking at something else. Especially out in the desert wilderness, rock formations had a wonderful use in providing landmarks. When you're out in a place and you're trying to figure out where you are and you're out in the wilderness, you look for an unchanging, a fixed, immovable landmark so you know that's where that is. And if that's where that is, we go over here, we go over there. In life, you and I need direction. And the more confusing and the more difficult life gets, the more we need an immovable, unchangeable, fixed reference point to provide guidance through life. God is unchanging in His character and in His nature and His Word is unfailing. We can count on our rock when everything else is shaken, when everything else is moving and is frightening. God alone is our refuge, our immovable shelter. But there's more. He goes on to say, God is my rock. God is my salvation. He is the rescuer, the helper. We know that very often when people get themselves into precarious places, where they're mountain climbing or whether they're out on the water or wherever they are, that often rescue efforts are launched. Great efforts with with all kinds of resources often go to try to rescue people, but many times they fail. Interesting thing. He says, God alone is my rescuer, my helper. And God never fails at whatever He sets out to do. See, when you find yourself in a difficult spot, remember that the One who rescues you never fails at what He intends to do. God alone is my salvation. He moves on and says, God is my fortress. He's the stronghold. He's the fort, the place where you go. And the emphasis is that with God, when we are in His care, we are perfectly safe. No one can touch us. That's good news. 
The New Testament says it this way, Romans chapter 8, it says, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus, when He was talking to the disciples, John chapter 10, He gave them a word of comfort. He says that you are in My hand. Then He goes on to say, and My hand is in My Father's hand. And no one is able to snatch you out of His hand. Isn't that good news? We're not just in Jesus' hands. We're in the hand. We're doubly protected is what He's saying. Brothers and sisters, how we need to cling to this. God is our rock. God is our salvation. God is our fortress. Therefore, David goes on, he says in verse, back in verse 1, my soul finds rest. He actually doesn't use those words. He says, my soul waits in silence. What it means by that is that the storm has come. The difficulty is there. The enemies are all around him. He's in a precarious place, but he's not dealing with that by, oh, what am I going to do? He's silent. He's not panicking, nor is he complaining. I've noticed that people tend to be one of the two. We tend to panic or we tend to complain. I'm a complainer. I rarely panic, but I complain a lot. Especially to God. God, I don't like this. God, this stinks. Why are you doing this? What about, why don't you do it this way? I have lots of ideas for how God should do things. Maybe you're not a complainer. Maybe you're a fretter. Either way, what we need to do is do what David says here and handle it with silence. We don't need to complain, nor do we need to, to fret. We need to rest in the One who is our rock and our salvation and our fortress. David is peacefully and confidently waiting on God. Like a little child who will fret and worry until Dad picks him up in their arms and says it's okay. And they trust Dad and they rest. That's what we're to do. We're to come to our Father and trust Him. He's got it. There's no reason for us to fret, worry, or complain. God's got it. I can relax. The second verse of this psalm picks up in verse 5. Verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. We read that and say, man, that just sounds an awful lot like what just happened up in verse 1 of this song. And you're right. Except there is something different. There's a couple of little things that we want to notice because those little things help us really understand what David is doing here. And it's something very different here than what happened up in the first verse of the psalm. Notice, look very carefully at verse 1. In verse 1 it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. Now look at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Very, very similar, but there's a very subtle difference. In verse 1, David is describing what he's doing. 
in verse 1, he says, I'm waiting, I'm resting, waiting on God alone. In verse 2, he says, Hey, you, David, oh my soul, rest, wait in silence on God alone. See the difference? Verse 1 is describing what he's doing. Verse 2, he's telling himself to do that. That's significant. David here, in the second verse of this psalm, David starts preaching about trusting God. And the first thing he does here is he starts preaching to himself. That's a significant thing. You know, most of the time we think of talking to yourself as being nuts. And I talk to myself all the time, so know your pastor is nuts. We go around muttering to ourselves, talking to ourselves, but in this case, I think David is calling for you and me to make a habit of talking to ourselves. David is trusting God, and yet at the same time, David feels the need to preach to himself, and tell himself to trust God. Why? Well, if you've ever had problems, anybody ever here? Even though you believe God, even though you trust God, do you find yourself still needing encouragement to hang in there? We all do. And sometimes the only person to talk to you and tell you that is you. Nobody else is around. So what you need to do is you need to kind of Take up the job of preacher. Maybe you will never want to stand in front of a big bunch of folks and preach because that's scary. (laughs) But all of us should be preachers and we should preach to ourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a British pastor and medical doctor from last century. Uh, He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. He said this in the book. He said, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You see, what he goes on to explain is that most of the time what we do is we listen to our natural inclinations. And our natural inclinations are to panic (laughs) when trouble comes. Our natural inclinations are to get frustrated. Our natural inclinations are to get angry. Our natural inclinations are all kinds of things. And we just start listening to all of our natural inclinations. And he says, that's not good. When you listen to yourself like that, you just find yourself in all kinds of problems. Instead, he says, you need to talk to yourself. Now, that would just be some interesting advice from a pastor if it's not from God. But actually, he takes us right to Scripture and shows us that's exactly what Scripture encourages us to do. He takes us to Psalm 42, where David in Psalm 42 is going through a real mess of a time. Listen to what David says in Psalm 42, 5. He says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? He's asking himself a question. A lot of us do that all the time. And then we answer ourselves. David says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? David doesn't answer himself 
and give an answer for why he's upset, he answers himself by preaching a sermon. He says, hope in God. Hey, you, why are you upset? It's supposed to be a rhetorical question. You don't have a good answer. Instead, trust God. Notice what he says next. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. David says, I know how this ends. Because when I trust in God, He delivers me, so I know again what's going to happen is at the end of this, I'll come, I'll look back and I'll say, God, thank you for helping me there. So let's skip the middleman here, and instead of worrying and fretting, let's just get right down to the praising. David preaches a sermon to himself there in Psalm 42. So Dr. Jones goes on to say, So then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is. What God is. What God has done. Look back to the past and what God has done in the past. And what God has pledged to do in the future. Then having done that, Dr. Jones goes on to say, end on this great note. Defy yourself. And defy other people, and defy the devil, and defy the whole world, and say with this man, that's David, I shall yet praise him. Dr. Jones is right. We need to be preaching sermons to ourselves. When the difficulty comes, start remembering who God is. What does the Scripture say? Who God is. Remember what the Scripture says about what God is. His nature, His character. Remember all that God has done in the past. Remember all that God has promised to do. Remember the future, the destiny that God has for us. And then in the context of all that, defy our natural inclinations, defy the situation, defy other people, defy the devil himself, and say, I will yet trust God. Praise Him. That's what David is doing here in Psalm 62. He's piling up descriptions of who God is and he preaches to himself here, trust God. So he says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. O my soul, wait in silence for God alone. For my hope is from Him. That's his sermon. There's another little change then that comes in this second verse of this psalm. And it notice it here in, if you go up to verse 2, David says this, I shall not be greatly shaken. In other words, I won't let this situation beat me down too badly. I won't be greatly moved and shaken by this. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt me really badly. That's verse 2. Look down at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, I shall not be shaken. There's no greatly in there anymore. His position has changed. He doesn't say, I'm not going to be shaken greatly. He says, I'm not going to be shaken at all. David's not saying that because he has decided that he is stronger than he thought he was. 
He's not saying that because He's built Himself up and now I'm strong. He's saying that because He's realized that God is strong. God is stronger than I'm tempted to think He is. God is more dependable than I'm tempted to think He isn't. And when I get worried and He's realizing, if I rest in Him, I won't be shaken at all. Interesting. David's trust has been deepened because he preached that sermon to himself. Then in verse 8, another thing changes here. Verse 8, Trust Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. David has been preaching to himself, but now he turns and he turns to all of us and he says, hey folks, <laughs> everybody, you, you need to trust God instead of worrying and fretting. You need to trust God instead of fearing. You need to trust God instead of complaining. Trust Him. He preaches to us. Notice he says, trust in God at all times, people. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't trust God today and flake out tomorrow. Don't try to trust God yesterday and flake out today. Trust God today. Tomorrow, all the time. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't hold back. Because God is a refuge for us. He is our safe place. So the Scripture calls us, the Apostle Peter over in his little letter, 1 Peter 5.7, he says, Cast all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. Cast all your anxiety. Not most of it. All of it. It's a tendency for us to trust God about some things or maybe a lot of things, but to hold back some things. He says, cast all your anxiety on Him. In the last verse, the last stanza, David lays out before us the reasons why he trusts in God. Again, we don't see it in English, but verse 3 that actually verse 9, which is the third verse, starts again in the Hebrew with the word only. But this time something's different as he says only in verse in the first and second verses, the only is about God, but in this third verse, the focus of the only changes and he talks about people. Notice what he says, verse 9. Those of low estate are, and here's the word only, those of low estate are only or but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Why should I trust God? Why do I trust Him? And His reason is this. First reason is people are nothing. People are nothing. Whether you're talking about the enemies or the folks who are oppressing you, who are making life difficult, who are out to destroy you, whether you're talking about them, they are of no, they are of no account. Or whether you're talking about, you're just in a situation and you're looking for people to come to your rescue. You're looking for your deliverance and your hope in people. Either way you're looking at it, he says, people aren't the answer to your problem. People are nothing. Notice he says, he goes on, he says, those of low estate, the low-born people, the people that the world doesn't give much credence to, he says, yeah, they are but a breath. They have all the substance of a breath, of air. Then he says, the 
those of high estate, the highborn, the folks that all the world makes a big to-do about, He says, guess what they are? He says, they are a delusion. They're less than air. They are a figment of imagination. They're a delusion. In the balances, if you have, and the picture here is a scale, in the balances, He says, if you take the highborn, the the people of, of great value in the world's economy, and you put them over here on the scale, it goes up. You put anything on the scale and this goes down. He says, but not this. He says, you put them on there and they're less than nothing. They go up. Together, if you take all the people the world values and says are so important and so valuable and so strong, and you put them over here, He says, they are less than a breath. Now, the breath was the lowborn, the people that the earth doesn't value. And He says, they're worth a breath. He says, you put all these folks together and they're less than a breath. Now, he doesn't mean that people have no value. What he's saying is that if we are worried and fearful of people, we shouldn't be. Or if we are looking for people to rescue us and solve our problems, we shouldn't be. See, that's the point. But that's where we tend to get our focus is on people. Why does David trust God? Because people are nothing. He moves on. Verses 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In a nutshell, what he's saying is that human resources are useless. Now, these words could be understood a couple of different ways to get there. One is he might be talking about our enemies and he might be saying that all the resources of the enemies, all of their ill-gotten game, all of their treachery, all of their, their extortion, all of their robbery, all of their riches, all that they have allied against you, make them seem ominous, but I want you to understand those things are worth nothing. Or, and I think this is probably more likely, He's not talking about our enemies. He's talking to us. They say, well, if He's talking to us, why is He talking about extortion and robbery and those types of things? Because I think there's a tendency for you and me. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just me. But there's a tendency when we get put under the pressure and we're dealing with people who are coming after us to go back to that old saying, you fight fire with fire. Right? And if they're coming at me and they're not playing fair, neither will I. And so we resort to lies and slander and all these things. He says, don't put your trust in human means. Whatever they are, riches, extortion, robbery, forget about it. It's empty. Why do we trust in God? Verse 11 12, a third reason. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Why does David trust in God and why should we? The answer is because God is trustworthy. He says God has spoken and I've learned two things from what God has said. The first is this, that two important truths. God is strong. He says power belongs to God. Do you notice He didn't quantify it? He doesn't say, 
most power belongs to God or 90% of power belongs to God or really, really big, huge power belongs to God, he says, power. There's a good reason for that. Because all power belongs to God. The only power that anyone has is power that God has given to them. God Himself has all power. That's what the the theological term, the one the theologians use, is omnipotent. Omnipotent. Omni means all. Potent means powerful. God is all powerful. That has huge significance when you and I go to think about we said before, you have enemies lined up out there no matter who they are, no matter how big they are, no matter how powerful they seem, they have no power. God has all power. Why should we trust God? Because He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He's in charge. There's a second reason, a second thing that God has said that David says, It's a truth that we need to cling to. And that is this. God is loving. It says, to you, to God, belongs steadfast love. The word there for love is hesed. It is the steadfast, faithful, loving kindness of God. The unfailing, never-ending love of God. As I thought about this passage this week, I realized that's it. David has brought us right here to the, to the core of what it is to have, to be able to have, to be able to have confident trust no matter what else is going on. And it comes down to these two truths about God. God is all powerful and God is all loving. I realize that whenever it is, brothers and sisters, when we, when we panic, when we become afraid, when we complain, when we fail to trust God, it always comes down to we are denying one of these two things. We are denying that God is either all-powerful or that He is all-good and all-loving. You see, there's that tendency for us to think that somehow, yeah, God really does love me. The Bible says so. We sang it, you sing it in the little song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. He loves me. So why do I fear? Because I think that maybe somehow in His love, He loves me really a lot, but maybe He just isn't capable. Or, We believe that He is fully capable, but maybe He just really doesn't have my best interests at heart. Maybe He really doesn't love me. The only reason not to trust God is because we don't believe one of those two things is true. If we believe both of them is true, we can trust Him fully because He is fully loving and fully capable. The question simply comes down to, will we trust Him? And then we have that little concern. Well, what about those bad guys out there? He has one more little thought. (laughs) One more word for us. For you, God, will render to man according to His work. 
God is a faithful and just God. We don't have to worry about all that. Again, it comes back to our great God is loving. Our great God is all-powerful. And I can rest. Isn't that awesome? Father, we need to hear that this morning. We need to not only hear it, we need to put it into practice. For all of us who have a relationship with You, we can rest in this. If there's anyone here who has yet to have a relationship with You, they need to know that You're a loving God. You're also a just God. We are sinners. You provided a Savior for us through Jesus. He bore the penalty of our sin. You offer forgiveness through Him to any who will say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then comes a relationship with You. And with that relationship, we can rest. For You, our God, are both loving and You're powerful. So for this morning, Father, for those who are here and they're in the midst of of chaos, may they find rest and grace in these the realities of these truths. For those of us who the, the storm is coming, maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, maybe next year, may we even make a habit of it now of resting in You so that when the storms come, it's not a new thing that we rest in You, but it's simply continuing what we have done all the way along the way. That we don't trust our own strength, our own devices. We don't trust anything else. We rest in You. Thank You, Father, for Your great love and Your great care as our rock, our salvation. As we ask in Jesus' name.